0: Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life luke chapter 2 verses 25 through 35. now there was a man in jerusalem whose name was simeon and this man this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The word of the Lord.
1: Praise be to God. Hill City, you can take a seat. Hey, good morning, guys. I know I'm a bit of a new face up here. Uh, Brad was going to introduce me this morning, but he he's down bad with a sickness, okay? So you might say a prayer or two for him. But if you haven't met me yet, my name is Colton Banks. Uh, I've called Hill City home for a few years now. I came on the staff in July as a church planting resident and have had the privilege of Working with Salt Company over the last six months. And let me just tell you, man, it's such a privilege to be up here today. I'll tell you one thing: working with college students has been the unexpected blessing, has been the constant reminder that I was also 18 not too long ago, and I was completely lost and aimless with no vision for my life, as far from God as anyone. And now, 11 years later, I get the joy. Of talking with you today about Jesus and so it's not lost on me how much of a privilege that is especially during Advent I mean Advent at Hill City it really is uh, my favorite time of the year I mean, I, I'm just here for all the festive spirit around Christmas time. I'm here for the movies. I'm here for the music. I'm here for the lights. I'm here for the cookies, man. Chocolate chip cookies are my stumbling block, okay? So I'm just, I'm feeling fat and jolly around this time of the year uh, during Advent. And it, it's not, obviously it's that, but even more than that, Advent is this time where we as the church, not Hill City as a building, not Hill City as an organization, but Hill City as the people and the family of God look forward to the arrival of our King Jesus. That's our hope. That's our peace. That's our joy. And those are the three things we've covered so far in our Advent series. Today, I get to talk to you about love, the love of Christ. Who doesn't like talking about love, right? I mean, just all the warm and fuzzy feelings that come around this topic, especially during Christmas time. But despite all the warm and fuzzy feelings that often come around this topic, here's what I want us to walk out today knowing. Namely, that Jesus, our King, loves us enough to bring the sword to our lives. All right, that's the idea we are exploring today. So I've got my work cut out, cut out for me, so let's pray and let's dive in. Lord Jesus, our Father, I pray Allow us to behold wonderful things in your word. I pray, allow us to see your love clearly, and to feel your love deeply, even if it exposes us. I pray, Lord, humble us under your mighty hand. Amen. All right, y'all, the text today is Luke 2.25 through 35. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there up. but here's what I want to do. Before we get into that, I just want to set the stage. I want to frame this discussion properly. Uh, and here's how I want to do that. I, I want to help us. Uh, I want us to imagine a scenario. Okay, here's a scenario. You, uh, you have your wife that you're introducing to your new boss. Okay, let's just say your wife's name is, is Sheila. Okay, shout out to all the Sheilas out there. But here we are. We're meeting the new boss. And it goes like this. okay hey boss, uh, this is my friend, Sheila. Now your wife would look at you like, excuse me, what did you just say? And if you're feeling really bold, you might respond with, what? You are my friend, right? And in some, in some sense, you'd be right, but in a much larger, in a much more significant sense, you would be absolutely wrong. Okay, you'd be other things too, but let's just stick with wrong for now. Okay, but, but here's the deal. What's the, here's the catch. How is it that you're wrong when you obviously stated something that was true? After all, she is your friend. Well, because it's not what you said. It's what you failed to say. In other words, in describing your wife's relationship to you, you failed to communicate a much more important truth. Now, why do I share this? Because I think when it comes to the stories of Jesus' birth, we always run the same risk. Listen, Jesus is many things. He's a wise counselor. He's a a friend of sinners. He's a shepherd. But there's something even more fundamental to who he is and what he came to do. Okay, so here we are, Luke 2.25. We have this child, Jesus, who's being presented at the temple as part of Jewish customs. And the question that's looming underneath the text is this, who exactly is this child? And what makes him so special? Okay, here's where the text starts, Luke 2, 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Okay, so the text says that Simeon, this righteous and devout Jew, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Okay, that's a bit of an odd term of phrase. What, what does that mean? Okay, well the Greek word for consolation here, it's, just this, it's this word parakleo. It means coming to one's aid or to call to one's aid. In other words, Simeon was waiting for the one who was to come to the aid of Israel. Okay, but who's the one? Well, that's revealed in verse 26. The one is the Christ, or what might be otherwise referred to as the Anointed One, or, or the Messiah. Okay, Simeon is saying, this child, Jesus, he is the Christ. He was the one who was to come to the aid of Israel. Israel was awaiting a Savior. Now, Aaron mentioned last week, That one way to think about a savior is is like someone who runs into a burning building to rescue the people trapped inside by dragging them out. And this is the type of consolation that Simeon, along with all of Israel, is waiting for. They're trapped, Israel is trapped in a burning building. And the question that follows is this, well okay, well how so? Why are they in need of aid? What exactly was Israel needing saving from? Okay, and guys, here's what I think. We really have to avoid something potentially problematic that we have, we have a tendency to do if we're not careful. Namely, skipping straight from the Garden of Eden to the New Testament and forgetting everything that happens in between. Right, if we do that, we're roughly skipping 75% of the story of the Bible, and the Bible is a story. I mean, imagine, imagine if you skipped 75% of a movie, you just went straight to the climax, right? You'd see some exciting stuff, you'd see some crazy action, but you would have no idea what's going on, right? You would miss some major events, some major themes, some major characters. Well, Israel is a major character. And that 75% that we often miss is Israel's story. They're a central character. You see... After the Garden of Eden, after the fall of man, God makes a promise to Abraham. And he says, listen, your offspring, which will be Israel, this is going to be a kingdom and a nation through which I will bless the entire world. What did this mean? It meant that Israel was going to be different from the other nations around them. They were going to be marked by the the rule and the reign of the one true God. Yahweh, and in that way, they were going to be a light to the other nations, so much so that other nations would would catch a glimpse of what's going on and leave behind their allegiance to corrupt laws, wicked tyrants, uh, false gods, and they would claim their allegiance to the one true God, Yahweh, and they would live according to his law and operate according to his principles, and in this way, All the world would be blessed. Okay, but that's not what's happening by the time we get to Luke 2. Right? God's chosen people, Israel, they're trapped in a burning building. Okay, and here they are, the kingdom that God made a promise to bless the whole world through. And instead, they're a fallen kingdom that's been ruled over by their enemies for the last 600 years. Okay, and that's why Simeon, along with all of Israel, is waiting for their consolation. They are wondering, when will you come to our aid, Lord? And when will you reestablish your kingdom? And all they get for hundreds of years is silence. Question, is that what you're getting right now? Listen, I know Christmas can be a merry and a jolly time for some. But I also know that despite having all these lights outside of our house, that it can also just be masking and hiding a darkness and a grief within the walls. I know that this time can be a time that reminds us that we've, we've lost people we love in our life and we wish they were here for, for Christmas. It's, or, or it's a time where we know that instability and family dysfunction and brokenness await us when we go home for the holidays. Or it's just simply this lonely feeling that we carry in the back of our hearts and we wonder, just like Israel, when will you come, Lord? Where is our aid Where is my help? And then here we are at the beginning of Luke, and the silence has lifted. A Savior is born. And Simeon takes this child up in his arms, and he says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Hill City, who is this child? He is the king that we've all been waiting for. And he has come to launch the kingdom of God on earth. This is the fundamental identity and mission of Jesus. It's who he is and it's what he came to do. This is why the book of Mark reports of the first words of Jesus where the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's why Simeon describes this child as the glory of the people of Israel. The announcement is clear. The king has arrived. The king has arrived. The king that we, the Jews, have been waiting for is here. But here's the deal. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles alike, a.k.a. you and me. It's for all people. God's promise of salvation is for the entire world. But then here's where things get a little little spicy, (laughs) okay? Simeon takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he looks over at Jesus' mother, Mary, and he says this. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Okay, wait, this is a little confusing. Didn't Simeon just say that Jesus was the glory and the light and the salvation of all people? How is it then that he will be responsible for the fall of many? How can he be the salvation of Israel, yet responsible for the downfall of many within Israel? Okay, well here's how Jesus reconciles this. Fast forward later in Jesus' life to Matthew 10, 34-35, and here's what he says. Here's how he spells this out. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. In other words, Jesus is a sign opposed that causes conflict. Okay, this is not exactly the gentle, sweet, six pound, ten ounce baby Jesus we like to talk about in our nativity stories, right? I mean, it, it kind of reminds me, my, my Granny Betty, she used to uh, collect these, these Precious Moments figurines. And you guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody know about Precious Moments? Okay, we got a few in here. All right, but she, she used to take these little figurines and she set up a little, uh, little nativity scene, right? And everything was pearl Y and Q and just, you know, oh, so precious. And, 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 but here's the deal. Could you imagine if there was a Precious moment scene for this statement from Jesus? I mean, a son against his father, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you are like, my mother-in-law is not a big fan of me regardless. Okay, but that's besides the point. That's besides the point. What Jesus is describing here is not exactly what I would call precious moment. What is Jesus suggesting here? Well, he's not suggesting physical violence, that much we know. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am a king wielding a sword that brings light and truth. And that truth is going to confront the power of sin and darkness within you. And Jesus is saying, listen, some of you, you won't have the stomach to accept it. You'll run, you'll hide, you'll fight it, you'll kick you'll scream, you'll hate me for it. In fact, you'll even put me on a cross and you'll execute me for it. And for in that way, many will fall. But Jesus is also saying, others will humble themselves. They will confess the darkness that's in them. They will repent and leave behind their old way of life. And they will follow me, Jesus, into a new kingdom as a new people. And in that way, they will rise. In other words, Jesus is saying, I will cause conflict among you, both externally and internally. We are either with Jesus or we are against Jesus. Jesus is polarizing. Why is that? Well, here's why. Here's what I want you to hear today. He'll say, If you hear anything, hear this. Because Jesus is a king that loves us enough. To bring the sword to our lives. Let me say that again. Because Jesus is a king that loves us enough to bring the sword to our lives. There's two things this sword does. It brings life and it brings judgment. I want to spend the rest of my time today talking about these two things. Let's talk about the first thing that the sword does. Number one, the sword brings life. Okay, how does the sword bring life? Well, it it cuts us open and it exposes us. That's the sword that Jesus wields. It exposes us. Hebrews 4, 12-13, it describes it this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All right, now here, here's where some might think, well, well that sounds harsh. What, what's loving about that? Guys, and, and the tone of that question right there sits at the heart of many of the problems we encounter in our today's culture. Right? Love in our culture has been reduced to mere flattery and charm. It sounds something like, don't tell me I need to change, that's unloving. I'm fine just the way I am, just just accept me for who I am. But the love of Christ is different than the definition of love that our world uses. 1 Corinthians 13.6, it says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. To say that love rejoices with the truth, it means that there is an objective standard that God has designed and God has ordered in the world that we are called to uphold. But the world rejects that. There are many who say there is there's no objective standard of truth. What's true is what I perceive to be true. My truth is my truth. So, so don't tell me how to live my life. I'm fine just the way I am. I am that I am. But that's not what the love that's not what the love of Christ would have for us is at Hill City. Jesus doesn't say I'm perfect just the way I am. No, He loves me enough to call me to more. He loves me enough to expose the evil within me so that I might find more of the good. He says, "Colton, you've got a problem, and if you don't change, you're going to die." And you're going to lead others to the grave with you. And I love both you and the people in your life enough to not let that happen. Can I just, can I just confess something? I have a devilish pride within me that has a vicious tendency to fixate on the faults of others. I mean it. I just, I'm constantly fighting off a critical spirit. In me, a, a spirit that criticizes me and a spirit that criticizes the imperfections in others. I'm constantly fighting that. And you know what? I'd like to hear from Jesus at times. I like for I'd like to hear from him. Hey, you're you're right. I totally agree with you. That person, they definitely need to fix that about themselves. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus does, is it? That's not what he says. What does he say instead? Matthew seven. Here's how he puts it. It hurts because it's true. Jesus exposes me. He exposes us. But here's something absolutely paramount that I want you to understand today, Hill City. Jesus only wounds to heal. Did you hear me? Jesus only wounds to heal. When Jesus wounds us, it's not because... It's not because he's disgusted with us. It's not because he's some big bully in the sky. When Jesus wounds us, it's because he's a loving surgeon. He wounds us like a surgeon must wound us, right? He takes a scalpel to our lives. He cuts us open and he shines a light on our vices and our selfish ambitions and our insecurities. But only so that he can find the cancer within us and cut it out so that we may find healing in our life. Don't miss this hill city. This is God's love towards you. This is how the sword Jesus wields brings life. And in this way, Jesus demonstrates something really important for us. That oftentimes the only way to peace is through conflict. Whether it's peace in our nation, peace in our families, peace in our marriages, peace in our friendships, or peace in our very own souls, it always, almost always has to get worse before it gets better, right? We think we'll have peace in our lives by avoiding certain things and just allowing them to fade into the background, but that's never the way it happens, is it? As they fade into the background, these, pro- these problems only become dragons that grow larger in the dark. And here's the deal, if we do not confront them when they are small, they will eventually take us out. Listen, there are some of you right now who who need to have a hard conversation, right? You need to have that hard conversation with your spouse. You, You think you can just avoid it and it'll go away, but you know it won't. Listen, some of you, you have a friend right now that confesses Christ with their lips and calls him Lord but is regularly sleeping with her girlfriend. And you as a friend need to confront them with that truth. Listen, there are people in here right now, I know you've got friends that are watching porn regularly and are justifying it in light of God's grace and what they need is a friend who will remind them that God is holy and that sin is destructive and that there is another person on the other side of that screen. And listen, if none of those hit close to home, Listen, some of us are just spending way too much time on our phone. So much so that that we're treating the digital world as if it's more important than the real people and the real world that's around us. And what we need is a friend to come alongside us and to shake us by the shoulders and just say, wake up. You are wasting your life. And will you just be bored with me That's gospel friendship. But we justify it because everyone's doing it, right? It's a small thing, right? Beware, Hill City, there is no sin too small that it can't take you out. If we think any sin too small and we allow it to fester and to grow like a cancer within us, it will eventually kill us. If we want peace and if we want order, we have to confront the disorder of our lives. If we want to heal, we have to pour the antiseptic of Christ's truth into our wounds. Proverbs 27.6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. This is the type of friend Jesus is to us. Have we allowed him to address our wounds? Where is the sin in our life that we are avoiding, big or small? What are we hiding in the dark? Nothing is too small. In the words of Hudson Taylor, Jesus is either Lord over all in your life, or he's not Lord at all. Do not let sin convince you it's too small. Jesus wants you to expose it to the light, and he wants you to confess it. Listen, I'll tell you right, right, I'll tell you right now, I need to stop eating out as much, okay? I've treated it like a small thing, but as I was just like praying through this message, I realized this is a tiny corner of my heart that I think I've been hiding. Listen, tell someone what you've been hiding. Is it it porn? Is it bad money habits? Is it resentment and bitterness towards your spouse, towards your ex, towards your parents? Is Is it an addiction to your phone, to sugar, to constant stimulation? Whatever it is, bring it to the light. Sin would have you hide and isolate yourself, but that is only Satan's strategy for maintaining a grip on your life. Allow yourself to be cut open and exposed to the great surgeon that is Jesus Christ so that he can do surgery on your life and bring you the healing that you need. He loves you enough to do that. He wields a sword that brings life because here's also the hard reality If in our pride we do not confess our sin, but we hide and we run and we fight it and we reject Christ's offer of healing in this life, there may come a time where that option is no longer available to us. Which brings me to my second point. Okay, the first point, the sword brings life. The second point, the sword brings judgment. Listen, if you've ever read through the Gospels, you know often that Jesus speaks in parables But here's something that dawned on me recently. I used to always think that Jesus' parables, like he was trying to be intentionally mysterious or cryptic or something like that. But then I discovered recently that that's that's not the case. You know why people couldn't understand Jesus' parables? It's because there were people who refused to listen to the truth so much so that they literally could not understand what Jesus was saying. This is why in Mark 4, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah when he says, They may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. The people who could not grasp Jesus' parables are like people who hear the the doctor's diagnosis but can't believe it. Not because Jesus was being mysterious, but because they were so blinded by their pride and self-righteousness that they could not see the truth clearly. They were under a delusion. Pride comes before the fall. And as Simeon stated earlier, Jesus was to be, Jesus is a sign opposed that was to be responsible for the fall of many in Israel. And the people that it seems most often guilty of this type of pride in the scriptures were those in Israel. A.K.A. God's chosen people, especially those who were religious leaders like the Pharisees. And, you know, being a Pharisee is not in and of itself a bad thing. The Pharisee's great problem was that in, was their inability to see their own hypocrisy. It's why Jesus calls them blind guides in Matthew 23 and pronounces judgments on them. This is what he says. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide, don't ask me what that is, and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Woe to me, Hill City, if ever I think having the title church planter or pastor next to my name somehow makes me special or more favored to God. Woe to me, Hill City, if ever I think attending a building on a Sunday morning and simply saying the words, I am a Christian, somehow protects me from pride and hypocrisy. Jesus wields a sword of truth that brings judgment. Jesus is a sign opposed. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. For those who humble themselves before King Jesus, they will find life. But for those who are proud, they will only find death. We are not afforded a neutral response when we come to Jesus. We either listen and obey, or we hide and avoid. You see, in the garden, God gave humanity all the freedom we could ever desire. He says, you may eat of every tree that there is, but there's just this one rule. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And then he made clear the consequences. He says, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But what do we do? We didn't listen. Adam and Eve, they hid from God, and they avoided him when they realized what they'd done. But it was useless. They, they could not hide from God's judgment. So what, what happens? Here's what the text says. Genesis 23-24. through 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Jesus' sword brought judgment. We sinned. And death was the consequence of sin. Humanity was exiled from the garden, and now a sword blocked our way to the tree of life. We could not hide from God's judgment, nor will we be able to hide from God's judgment when he comes. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here's the deal. Jesus, our king, he He loves us enough to take a sword to our lives, a sword that brings life and a sword that brings judgment. And listen, I know judgment is a scary word, but don't miss the good news here at Hill City. Christ, our perfect and righteous judge and king, he loved us enough to step into human history He he loved us enough to not leave us condemned, but to literally come as an infant in a manger. He came as the Messiah King to liberate us from the consequence of sin, which is what? Which is death. How did he do this? Well, he did this by dying as a sacrifice in our place. A sword-wielding lion offered himself up as a sacrificial lamb. And he loved us enough to take the sword upon himself. He was pierced for our transgressions. But death couldn't hold him there. Why? Because sin didn't own him. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, being proven right that he is the rightful king and savior of the world. Listen, if you're serving communion this morning, you can go and head on back to your stations. Here's what I just I just want to say today. He'll say if if you humbly allow Jesus to expose the sin in your life, and you allow him to take the sword of healing to your life, and you confess what you've been hiding, and you believe in your heart that Jesus is king and is Lord, you do not have to fear judgment. You are forgiven. You've been made new. You are now part of a new kingdom serving under the rule and the reign of King Jesus as new people in a new community. That's the case for us. And, and there's no greater love than that. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, You are the sword-wielding lion that brings life. Lord, I pray, expose us to those areas of our life where we are avoiding. Lord, let us come and, and find the living water and the bread of life and the medicine and the healing that we need. Jesus, you are the great surgeon, I pray. Show us our wounds, Lord that we may come at your feet and find healing. We, We pray for this earnestly, Lord. Show us yourself. And we praise you, Jesus, for your great love. Amen.